0: We're ready for the first question. The first question in the back. Go ahead.
1: Uh, so my question is, is we know how much Abraham and Moses and the other patriarchs knew uh, about God and just them speaking face-to-face and having that intimate relationship with God. Uh, but my main question is, is, what about the common believer or the common A person who believed in God during that time, did they have the same amount of knowledge in that sense that Abraham knows,es Isaac and Jacob and all of them had at that
0: time? Okay, Uh, if if we we know that Abraham and Moses and others they had a lot of knowledge about the truth, about the gospel, about God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, their own salvation, we know that, and if they did, did the common believer? also know that? Or even the unbeliever, how much could the unbeliever know? But especially how much did the common believer know aside from the Abrahams and the Moseses of of the day? Okay, but to answer this question, we need to do it on a few levels. Firstly, we are assuming that Abraham and Moses knew a lot. Is that right or not? Because not everybody assumes it correctly. Some think Abraham didn't know very much. Moses did not know very much. Some think that. However, let's see that Abraham, in fact, did know a whole lot. And he was, indeed, responsible to teach others. Abraham knew, and he was responsible to teach others. Let's prove that from Genesis 18-19. Genesis 18-19. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Abraham is commanded to teach his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. Which means Abraham knew the way of the Lord and he was commanded to teach. Of course, it's fair to assume that he did teach. It's fair to assume that he did teach since he is a man of faith, correct? Man of faith and obedient. Chapter 26, Genesis 26, Genesis 26, 4 and 5. Genesis 26, 4 and 5. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In this case, this promise is repeated, and it says in verse 5, the promise of verse 4 from earlier chapters is repeated. And then verse 5, why? Why is this going to happen? Because Abraham obeyed me. Well, that answers the question about 1819. Did Abraham obey God by teaching his household and his children? The answer is yes. God says, he obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Which means it wasn't just one thing Abraham was expected to know and do, or two or three things, there were several things, many things that he needed to know as the, the, the truth about the gospel, the true way of salvation, the true way to live his life, and he would have taught others that. We do know he was supposed to teach others from 1819. And 26.5 says he obeyed. And he kept the charge of the Lord. And obeyed his commandments, statutes, and laws. So that teaches us that he not only obeyed, but he had a lot to obey. And if he had a lot to obey, to know and to obey, he would have taught his children and his household. And even, I think, he would have taught strangers yeah. the same thing, okay? Now, we, we've also mentioned Moses in our question and answer. Let's look at Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. 25, 21 a description of the Ark of the Covenant, which would be placed in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle and temple. 25.21 says, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. And there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, and from between the two cherubim, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. That was the sanctuary, that was the inner sanctum, the place where God personally, personally communed, communicated, fellowshiped with Moses. And it says, about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. That means that everything was delivered there and it wasn't for Moses to keep to himself. It was for the sons of Israel. So Moses, as a good teacher, good prophet, would have communicated and explained to the people what exactly God required and what he meant by what he required. Not only what he required, but what he meant by it, the true interpretation of what he said. Moses would have conveyed that to the people, And Numbers 12, another example with Moses. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron confront Moses because of the Cushite woman that he married. And then God confronts them. And God is upset when Moses is challenged. Moses' knowledge, Moses' authority, Moses' place before God, when that was challenged, God was upset. So if we say... Moses was ignorant, or Moses did not teach the people, we're also challenging Moses, and God would be upset. We have to be careful about that. So, Numbers 12, 6, 12, 6. He said, God said, "'Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream.'" Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant? Against Moses. God rebukes them and says that Moses is not the average prophet. The average prophet gets visions and dreams. Moses gets things face to face. Personally, I come down from heaven. I dwell in the most holy place. The the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of the Lord is there in the most holy place. And that's where I commune with him. No other prophet has that privilege. Moses does. And you think I don't tell him everything he needs to know? I do tell him everything he needs to know. So why would you presume to have greater authority or equal authority to Moses. You don't, Miriam and Aaron. You don't. That's a confirmation. Moses knew a whole lot and was in a unique role to know a lot. Then, let me also make the point that both the prophets and the apostles, they knew more than what they wrote. They knew more, they heard more from God than what they actually composed in the books of the Bible. Is that a fair assumption? Yes. Actually, it says it explicitly in John 21. John 21, 25. 21, 25, the last verse. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Jesus did many other things. John wrote of some of them in the book of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote of some other things too that John did not. And John wrote of some things Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not. Correct? Mm -hmm. But even if you take the sum of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all of the New Testament, still the world could not contain the books. He's saying there would be a whole lot more to write. And God chose not to write a whole lot more, but only this amount. So they knew more than what they actually composed in Scripture. Then another aspect to that question is, were they faithful in teaching others, in speaking up and telling others? Well, John is here. He wrote the book of John, right? Right? so he was faithful to do that and others were as well for example second 2 peter 2:5 2, speaks second peter chapter 2 verse 5 speaks of noah as a preacher of righteousness noah is a preacher of righteousness if he's a preacher of righteousness and he lives before the time of abraham before the flood and even also after the flood, if he's preaching righteousness, what is the righteousness that he would be preaching? In the context of Peter, in the context of the New Testament, and even in the context of the Old Testament, since Jesus and his apostles always say, (coughs) as it is written in the prophets, as it is written, as it is written, what would the righteousness be? It would be the righteousness of Christ. Noah wasn't preaching his own righteousness. Noah wasn't preaching righteousness, salvation by works, in that way. Noah wasn't saying, let's just learn to get along with each other and hold hands in our societies and not kill each other. He wasn't preaching civil righteousness, though there's a place for that, not killing each other. He was preaching true righteousness, heavenly righteousness, Christ's righteousness, eternal righteousness, for those who repent and believe in the gospel. that's what Noah was preaching. So that's an example of Noah being a faithful preacher. What he knew, he did not keep to himself, he preached it to others. Second Corinthians, second Corinthians, chapter four, verse 13. Second Corinthians 4:13. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written. I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak. And speak of what? Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. What do we speak of? The gospel. The death and resurrection of Christ and those who believe in him benefit. So he says in 13, The same spirit of faith, the spirit of faith, that existed in the, this verse he's quoting from Psalm 116.10. 116, the same faith that was there in Psalm 116.10 is the same faith that Paul has and others have, because he says we, just as it says, I believe, therefore I spoke. We believe, therefore we also speak. We believe what? The gospel. We speak what? The gospel. That's the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the gospel. It's fair to assume that a true believer who has knowledge wants to share that knowledge, wants to preach that knowledge, wants to teach that knowledge, the knowledge of the true gospel to others. First, his own loved ones, his own family, and then outside from there. He'll do that. He'll want to do that. He cannot but do that. Amen. Because it's, it's in his heart and it bubbles up. It bubbles overflows. He has to say it. He has to speak it. Because if he doesn't speak it, every time he doesn't speak, God's going to prick his conscience. He's going to prick his conscience and he's going to feel guilty that he didn't speak up for Christ. So believers speak up and they share the gospel. Okay, so that's the answer, the long answer to your question. It's a necessary question because people assume that those in the Old Testament were... Quite ignorant of the things that we know or believe in the New Testament. And I don't think that that's true. Oh, let me answer one other aspect of that question. And that is people say, this is a cliche, uh, they didn't have total understanding. They didn't have total knowledge. They didn't have complete understanding. They didn't have complete knowledge. We have complete knowledge, is the implication. We have total knowledge, is the implication but they did not. Well, who said? Really, what is, it, what is it that we know that is superior and better, more necessary than what Abraham and Moses knew? What is it? What, what, when they say they didn't have complete knowledge, what they really mean is they didn't believe in the death, the vicarious death of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. They didn't have a hope in the world to come. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the coming death and resurrection of Christ. And the way that they were saved was by other means, whether it was by works or whether it was by faith in something else or someone else, they did not believe in the coming death and resurrection of Christ. That's what they mean. Well, they didn't have total knowledge. Well, we're not talking about total knowledge or comprehensive knowledge. Because even today believers don't have complete or total knowledge. Believers don't have that. But then also, even if we did have total knowledge or have the best teacher to teach us total knowledge, it does not guarantee that people will believe. Because they had Jesus Christ preaching publicly for three and a half years and He barely had a handful of disciples compared to the multitudes who followed him from place to place. So complete knowledge doesn't guarantee anything. No. Whatever definition we have of complete knowledge, it doesn't guarantee it. Just because everything isn't explained in certain ways in the Old Testament doesn't mean it did not exist. In fact, the apostles say it did exist. And a careful, historical, exegetical... Uh, accurate reading of the Old and New Testaments show what I just said. Okay. Any follow-up to that?
1: Oh, um, and then... So... Um, oh, so the... You, you, you would agree the well, What's your perspective on that? The completion of the King, right? we actually have, have the whole Bible put together for us, right, written down. We can study it ourselves. Um, it would be necessarily harder, correct, for them to. Um, would would it be hard for them to study these things, to understand these things, take longer because they would have to constantly go to the teacher, to Abraham or to Moses, right? Instead of, I mean, they can they can they pray themselves, right? I'm not saying they have to go to some priest or something but they don't have the bible in front of them they don't have the word of god like we do that's accessible Uh, but they did have the preacher there who spoke face to face so in that sense would it be harder to okay come to these things okay
0: so the written word as opposed to the verbal word Uh, wouldn't it be harder to have the verbal word because they would have to go to the teacher or to the prophet to understand and i would say no and in fact The people who say that have to admit that they don't really believe what they're saying. You know why? You hear all the time, pick up the phone or go talk to somebody in person. It's better than a text. It's better than an email. It's better than Facebook, right? Go talk to the person personally, privately, or on the phone, right? Why do they say that? Because they're saying verbal is better. Verbal and personal face-to-face is better. If you can assure accuracy that way. That's what they say. So who's talking and what do they mean by that? Why are they saying that? I think many of us would admit that talking face-to-face does ensure that you understand what's being said, right. okay? Another example is, let's say we have an author of a book. The book is written, the book is published, and then the author goes on tour Discussing his book, whatever the book is, right? And whatever the author is. Why does he go on tour to discuss his book? Of course, he's promoting the book, but the readers of his book, what is the advantage of them meeting the author personally and being able to ask questions about the book? To get a better understanding of what he wrote. A better understanding. Not a lesser understanding, but a better, fuller understanding of what he wrote. So the personal presence of the author does not uh, take away or diminish from the written word; it adds to it. It adds to it. Yes.
2: Abraham was called a god out of Ur of the Chaldees, right? Yes. So he's already having communion with God. Yes. And. That implies that he's already been born again, right? Yes. So he had to have received the gospel somehow. Yes. Somebody had to tell him.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: And it was passed
0: down from, from. Adam through all the no, Noah and Noah. Shem, okay. Yeah. So if he's Abraham, a relative, it's from yeah. Noah. That's. Abraham, the question that Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans... So somebody must have preached the gospel to him. He must have learned it at that point and be uh, regenerated and born again and a believer at that point before he even left Ur to go to Haran and then Canaan. And that's correct. But is there evidence of that? Is there evidence of that? For one, we know that the genealogy from Noah is explained in Genesis 11 and it goes from Noah to Shem Noah's one son Shem to uh, Abraham there in Genesis chapter 11. And so that line of faith or that godly line, the messianic line is explained right there. So it's likely that one of Abraham's ancestors, his father or his grandfather or both among them, they were the ones who taught. It wasn't that when he was born and and raised he wasn't always a believer. He became a believer. We know that to be the case from Joshua chapter twenty four verse two. Twenty four verse two, and Joshua said to all the people, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your, uh, from ancient times your fathers (coughs) lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor." and they served other gods. They served other gods. Also, twenty-four, fourteen, and 15 says the same, that they served other gods when they were born and raised in Ur. But at some point in Ur, the gospel that they had heard, they believed it, and that's why they left Ur and went to Haran, and, and Abraham and family went to Canaan. That's why that happened. So there was a conversion in Ur. Now, you might say, is there evidence that it had to be in Ur? Well, the fact that he left is one piece of evidence. Yeah. Okay, that's one. But Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Acts 7, 1 to 4. And the high priest said, are these things so? And this is Stephen. They're confronting Stephen. And... He said, Stephen said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. It says, In Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, the God of glory appeared to Abraham and said to him, Depart from your country and from your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Verse 4, Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. Meaning in the land of Canaan, by this point called the land of Israel. So when he went to Haran, he wasn't disobeying God. God told him to stop there for a while. We don't know how long he was there. But then when he left Haran to go to Canaan, Stephen says... Verse four, God removed him into this country from Haran to come to the land of Canaan or Israel. It was God who directed him to leave Or, to go to Haran, leave Haran and go to Canaan. So he had these oracles from God, words from God, Abraham had. So yes, um, there would have been knowledge of God like that from Noah and the line of Shem coming down to Terah and Abraham.
2: And it have extended to whoever God chose.
0: Yes. And then whoever it God... wasn't exclusive
2: to Abraham.
0: wasn't not exclusive to Abraham. We know Nahor believed. Right. Nahor believed. And then, because he, um, God is called the God of Nahor, Genesis thirty-one fifty-three
2: And Job himself...
0: Was and Job
2: a perfect example that he wasn't necessarily linked together with Abraham's family?
0: Yes, um, there there is some in terms of where he dwelt. He wasn't linked to Abraham's family, but Job would have had uh, among his ancestors right. s- some who believed, and that's how he heard the truth of the gospel. Right. Anyone else? Next question.
3: So, <clears throat> to go along kind of with that, but it was in my mind separately, but since it, it got brought up, like Luke chapter 6, verse 43, it says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, but each tree is known by its fruit. Right. Things are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces the evil. For out of the abundance of the heart of the mouth speaks. So that had not been inscripturated yet. Yet that principle was understood by the slave of Abraham.
0: Yes. Because
3: he was testing Rebecca to see what type of a heart she had. Right. And he knew that the only way he could determine who she was. Was by the fruit she produced. Okay. So yeah. So um, so we in our own day as well, we can know what a person is like <laughs> by judging their fruit. Though we can't see the heart the way God does, we can see what the heart manifests in terms of external fruit. Yes. And that's what the slave was doing, without her having any knowledge of. Um, she didn't know who he was or why he was there or that there was the prospect of her becoming wealthy because in her marriage to Isaac, she'd become a very wealthy person as well. So none of those things were on the table. She was just doing this because this is who she was and would have done it for anyone because she didn't know who he was.
0: Yes, yes, that principle is true. So verses Luke 6, 43 to 45, uh, the good fruit proceeds from a good tree. The bad fruit proceeds from a bad tree. And the bad tree is in the heart, or the good tree is in the heart, and we can only know what's inside and invisible by what's on the outside. So when people say, "Uh, you don't know my heart. (laughs) Well, if you're about to steal something from my house, I know what's in your heart you want to steal. It's bad, it's wrong. So if I judge you for that, It's a right judgment because I see from the the fruit of your deeds, your wicked deeds, that you have an evil intention in your heart. So yes, we can judge people based on their fruits. That's why Jesus said this in Luke 6 or in in Matthew 7, 16. So then you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. You can figure it out by their (laughs) fruits. And that's what the slave of Abraham did with Rebekah. So, so he knew that. He, he knew, knew, that, he knew that, principle.
3: To that principle. Yes. And he had to be taught it somewhere.
0: Yes, he had to know the principle. He had to have had that taught <coughs> somewhere, even though this is not said anywhere like this in the book of Genesis. Right. It's not said there.
2: Right.
0: Not in the book of Genesis. Um, also, speaking of Luke 6, look at 640. 640. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher.
4: Yeah.
0: So who's a good teacher and who's a good pupil? The teacher who invests in his pupil and the pupil who, who learns everything there is to know from his teacher. Correct? Right. That's a fully trained pupil, student, disciple, believer, right? So if that principle is true... Was it only true the moment Jesus said it and and that time onward? Or was it true in previous generations also? Always. Always. So Abraham, if he was a good teacher, would fully train his pupils. And if he had true pupils, they would have learned from Abraham everything that there was to know. And then uh, they would have done the same to the next generation and the next generation, which is 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Second Timothy 2.2 It's the principle that's applicable in every generation. And it's fair to assume that Abraham did it. And we actually do have the explicit example of Abraham that he actually did do it. Right. Genesis 26.5 Abraham obeyed me. All right.
4: It's interesting to me, brother, that um, when uh, when Rebecca was brought, brought by Laban, this this whole encounter with Rebecca when uh, she offered the water to the uh, servant and then she offered to feed the, the camels. If you read through there, which I just did again, unless I missed it, and I probably did, <laughs> but... Uh, Never once in this whole text does she make reference to the Lord. Like Laban does, or like uh, the servant of Abraham does. You know, and the reason I say that is because when I meet people who claim to know Christ, who claim to love the Lord, and yet they never make reference to the Lord Jesus, because like you said, one who knows the truth It bubbles out of them just naturally, or we would say spiritually speaking. And I I would expect that from uh, a truly regenerate believer who loves Christ, who considers Christ the lover of their souls, who's changed their life radically, that in evidence would be also their conversation, whether it revolves around the things of God and Christ especially, or not. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And it's interesting that there's no reference in here that she makes to the Lord like uh, Abraham's servant does and how Laban does, either. But nevertheless, she was obviously the Lord's, because that was uh, the Lord's plan to unite her um, with uh, Isaac.
0: Yes, actually uh, that's a proper observation um, and probably nothing is said of Rebecca, because Her words are not recorded very much. Except when she's trying to help with the the watering of the camels.
4: And that was a specific answer to the servant's prayer. Yeah. Yeah, so that alone would indicate to him, this is the woman that the Lord has brought to my master. And she undoubtedly is a lover of God as well.
0: Yes. So um, her, her words are, except in regards to the Watering of the camels and answering the slave's question about who she is, yeah. she she doesn't say very much throughout the chapter.
4: Right, right.
0: Yeah. So if but she had said more, yeah. But I understand your point that if you know the Lord, then you would want to speak of the yes. Lord and that would be Good. obvious.
4: And I like how you put it, it's gonna bubble out of you. Yes. you know, because when you talk to somebody just generally who's, who's in love with someone invariably it's going to come out of them and you'll see the love they have for this individual how much more a lover of christ Mm -hmm. that they can't wait to share you know uh, his his or her precious uh, savior you know
2: yes that's right but when rebecca was struggling with the twins in her womb she went to the lord and prayed to find out what was going wrong, so she obviously had trusted him and, and knew him.
4: Yeah, no doubt, at that point it's obvious. But I'm saying at this point, you know, the servant wanted to, to find the, the woman that God had chosen for his master. And I'm just saying, obviously she was regenerated. Uh, we're assuming she
0: wasn't here. Yeah, her words, probably it's absent in chapter 24 because her words are concise words. Yes. And it does say in 2430, she says to her brother, this is what the man said to me. So that's just her summary of yes. everything that happened. Sure. Uh, her words are not expansive words in chapter 24. They're concise. Yeah. And of course, later chapters 25 and following, we do have her speaking and, and praying to the Lord, like in um, chapter 25, 22. She went to inquire of the Lord. Yeah. yeah. Right. All right. Yes, over here. Did you have one? You summed it all up already. Oh, okay. uh,
5: just, just a couple of things. That yes. You summed it up. But, lastly, but not finally, let me say. Uh, no. um, well, with, with uh, Rebecca although there's not said there, she did know this was from the Lord. She did know that that's happened, and when she did agree to go back, you know, knowing all these things that uh, the right. servant had said, how the Lord had sinned, how Abraham had sinned, she believed and knew all that, and even when they were ready to go back sooner than her family wanted her to, she was uh, willing Was willing and said, I'll, I'll go. Yes, yes. yes. The other thing, which kind of goes to Jerry, what Jerry's mentioned out of Luke 6, and out of the heart, and evidence of the heart, obviously being, you know, fruit is how you know someone is a believer. Yes. What they say is not how you know someone is a believer. But the fruit of the mouth is also... Testifies to him. Right. But, but But the evidence is the fruit of one's life. And we see that here in the story. Why is it that even in our lives we do that? We examine someone's life to see if they're good and their workmanship to see if we'll recommend them for another job or whatever. But when it comes to salvation, for so many, we throw that out the window and say, when they were six at DBS, when they were 13 at youth camp, uh, why why do we throw that out when it comes to salvation so easily? Okay. When we don't do that
0: in anything else in our lives. Correct. So generally in life, in every other area of life, when we see true manifestation or true fruit, then we know that there's credibility there. But in reference to spiritual things and salvation, why do we throw that principle out of the window and say, well, no, we don't need to see fruit in so-and-so. He's saved, he's a Christian, he's going to heaven. Why do we do that? I think we do that because we have in the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil... We have this poison of universalism. Yep. The poison of universalism. That is, we want to believe that uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry, Mary, Elizabeth, and <coughs> Susie, especially my mother, my, especially my daughter, especially my father, especially my brother. We're, we are so close, and he's such a wonderful person. He, he, ha- he can't be lost. He, he must be going to heaven. We want to believe that, but what we do is, we convince ourselves of lies. In order to come to that result, we have to convince ourselves of lies and and not believe the truth of what the Bible teaches. We have to believe what the Bible says and overcome the lies which Mm -hmm. are permeating everything. Every day, we are susceptible to lies of the devil. We have to be on guard. Yeah. So, I think that's what it is. We want to believe that God would be so loving in in that He would never send so-and-so to hell. He would never do that. But we have to face the reality of what Scripture says. If they don't show forth true fruit, then they're not. And that is the loving thing.
1: Yep.
0: It is the most loving thing we can do if we... Suspect somebody to be an unbeliever, we have to tell that person you are an unbeliever and you will go to hell. You're not prepared to meet Christ on the day of judgment. That is where love resides because we have to snatch people out of the fire, Jude 23. My brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that the one who turns a sinner back from the error of his way will cover a multitude of sins and save his soul from death, Right? James 5, 19 and 20. So we're going to save him from death. So it's the loving thing to do to say, I don't think you're a believer. You better check yourself out and make sure that your eternal soul is going to eternal life and not to eternal death. That's the loving thing. And that's what we need to do. That's speaking the truth in love. That is rejoicing in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, rejoicing in the truth. That's where true love is the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. We have to convince ourselves that that is true.
3: The, the, um, along with, with that, in the Bible, it's, it's always that you judge the heart based on the fruit. But what I, you see so often today is that people will excuse the fruit because they know they have a good heart this person has good intentions, they mean well, they're sincere, they have a good heart. And even though I don't agree with this, they shouldn't be doing this, we know that they're a good person, therefore they excuse the fruit. Instead of looking at the fruit and saying, there's no way that his fruit could come from a sincere heart or a good heart or a good principle in the heart. It can't be coming from the spirit, it has to be coming from the flesh because it's sinful and evil. Yes. So, so it's an inversion of
0: the order. It's an inversion. But and it's like I said, it's not matching reality and it's insanity. It's actually insanity. You have to convince yourself of lies. That's what insane people do. They convince themselves of lies, irrealities, as though they are real, in order to justify their beliefs and, and their words, their behavior, also. They have to do that. But we can't be insane people. We have to be real people, sane, sober people in judging the situation. Do we want to stand before a human judge who thinks that if a thief had good intentions, he has no penalties? Or if a murderer has good intentions, at least the murderer is gonna claim he had good intentions, right? If a murderer has good intentions, then he's off the hook. He's free. There's no consequences to his crime. We won't want human judges like that. We want human judges who see through the situation. Of course, every thief is going to say, I really needed that. Of course, every murderer is going to say, I was justified to hate that that man over there. Of course, everybody's going to say and claim good intentions. But a human judge who's doing his duty properly will see through that and say, no, you did not have good intentions. You murdered that innocent man. You murdered that innocent... Your intentions were not good. Right. And the judge of heaven, all the more. The judge of heaven sees through everything. And we're not going to be able to convince him <clears throat> that, that um, I committed adultery, but I had good intentions. I murdered that other man over there, and I had good intentions. I stole over there from the bank and the store... Uh, on those various occasions, and I had good intentions. After all, I have to, everybody has to eat. I have a family. They have to, I have to feed my family. They can, everybody justifies their actions with this baptism or christening uh, sign of the cross of good intentions when it's all hogwash. The Bible doesn't teach that. Only an insane person believes that. But if you say that to somebody, you become the devil to him. That's the problem. They want to believe in universalism. They want to believe it's easy to get to heaven when the Bible says it's the opposite. Strive to enter by the narrow gate.
6: Right. Just to add to that, I, I encountered that in all the Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches I pastored. That was the biggest issue that, I'd say, got me kicked out is I would go in and teach what it means to be a believer go through 1 John, go through Matthew, and uh, I I think the biggest problem is is, well, one, people don't understand what the doctrine of the new birth And, and even i found among many and I'm sure it's outside of Southern Baptist life too, but a lot of the Southern Baptist pastors it's like they have no doctrine of the new birth there's no repentance taught um False Creek um, is that's what I call it. False False Creek, but uh, that and that's notorious for just easy believism, quick prayer. You're in, you're good, and there's no call to repentance, no call to take up your cross and follow Christ. And uh, and I, I think that just contributes to what men are already inclined to believe about themselves that. God. And, um,
0: so. Yes, that is indeed the case. The doctrine of the new birth. They don't have the doctrine or they misunderstand the doctrine. Right. They don't have it or they misunderstand it. In Nicodemus' case, isn't that what his problem was? Yep. He, he presumed to be a teacher of Israel, but he did not know these things. Jesus confronted him. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Right? And that's what we have in our pulpits. We have pastors who don't have any comprehension of the doctrine of rebirth. And uh, rebirth. And if they do have some comprehension of it, they have a wrong comprehension of it, wrong understanding of it. They think that their faith makes them born again. They think if they just believe, then everything is fine, and it's all dependent on their faith, their belief. If they believe, then God will give them a new heart. When the biblical order is reversed, God Amen. gives a new heart, and then, then you, you believe. believe. God gives you a new heart and then you repent. <clears throat> but you don't want to repent unless your heart is changed. You don't want to believe unless your heart is first changed. That's the part where they get in the reverse. And most of uh, Christianity says, faith produces rebirth if they believe in any rebirth.
6: Yeah. Many of these pastors, they they themselves believe just like the people in the in the pew, sure, sure, sure. because they don't believe. Because I've talked to many of them, and it, and if I'll say something like a person's not saved, there, there's no way they could be. Just by judging that fruit, <clears throat> they they can't even comprehend saying something like that. They believe their their whole congregation is fine and dandy, and because they come to church. Uh, And they go and live like the devil the rest of
0: the week. Yeah. And those same people in Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, and those who go to False Creek in Oklahoma, those that go to that campsite, these same people think that all Catholics are going to heaven. All Jehovah's Witnesses are going to heaven. All Mormons are going to heaven. They think that way. Because it doesn't depend on truth. It just depends on some action. I prayed a prayer or I go to church or I'm a member of a church. I'm associated with the church. I'm in Christianity. They think that way. And then, it's even worse than that. That's bad enough, but it's worse than that. They even think that if a Hindu is a faithful Hindu and a Buddhist is a faithful Buddhist and a Mohammedan is a faithful Mohammedan and even atheists. Yeah. And even if atheists just live according to what they believe and live a good life, as be- best as they can, they'll all go to heaven. They don't believe in free... I mean, they uh, believe in free will in a wrong way, right? But an atheist doesn't get a free will. When he dies, he's forced to get to heaven and, and, and meet God. It's so crazy the way that these free will thinkers believe. Yeah. So it, it, that's the problem. They really think and really want, back to the original point... They want everybody to go to heaven. And if you press them on the matter, they will eventually admit, yes, Hitler is in heaven, Stalin is in heaven, and any other uh, um, mass murderer is in heaven. And then press them on the spiritual world and they'll say, the demons and the devil himself will be redeemed. Why? Because God is love. God is so loving. He's so loving that there's no way He would put the devil and the demons in hell forever and ever. And I have had persons say that. Or a friend of a person say that and convey, convey the mutual friend convey that to me. Yeah, that's what so-and-so believes. And you can read this. Go read this. You can find it on the internet. Plenty of websites that teach universalism. That... Even the most heinous of human beings throughout history, they are in heaven. And even the devil will get there. Satan himself will get to heaven. They
6: don't read the same Bible I read.
0: Yes, they don't read. They don't believe it. They don't read it, and they don't believe it. Right.
6: Billy Graham had universalistic statements. Yes, Billy
0: Graham also had universalistic statements. Yes. Um, Okay, one more comment or question, and then we'll stop.
4: Uh, real quick, one of, the, one of the problems is, as it relates to acceptance into membership. Most people are accepted into membership, church membership, based on their profession. There's no, there's no trial of examination, or most churches honor the verbal profession of faith that people give, and they're they're welcomed into the membership when they could be still unregenerate, you know. And uh, I wonder how the churches in ages past, uh, uh, the Puritans and such, if they received members into church just based on their, yeah, I, I got saved when I was a kid or a teenager or whatever, or uh, was there a time of examination before they were allowed actually into membership to protect the church, to not... Um, be filled with uh, a bunch of unregenerate folks that entered in because there was no examination. Do you know if there's any history of that as far as uh, in the time of Spurgeon or... uh... There,
0: There is typically throughout history a period of training, whether a year or two years or three years, a period of training expected of the people who visit a church, attend the church, to be trained in the doctrine of the church before they can become members. And we also know that for leaders, they have to be tested. The Bible doesn't give a specific time, but it does say they must be tested. 1 Timothy Timothy 3, Timothy 3, verse 6 says, "...not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil." And he, ha- and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That's for elders or pastors. And then it says in reference to deacons, 1 Timothy 3.10, And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Yes. A period of testing. So there's no magical time. Uh, one month, six months, one year. It doesn't say yeah. so when there is the confidence that a, a man is equipped and qualified and called to be an elder or pastor then he can be examined or tested and become a, right. an elder or pastor same with deacon
4: yeah but I'm talking about non officers I'm talking about just members in general that are generally allowed into the church just based on their testimony uh, And really, it's kind of difficult for a pastor because what else can you go by? I mean, these are new people you just have been visiting
0: a while. Well, that's why I said there's always a period of training that must take place. And if the churches would have this same standard for pastors and deacons, then the pastors and deacons can do the same for members. But if they hire a pastor based on a one or two hour interview, then that's spelling trouble for the church. Yeah. They don't know the pastor. They don't know his background. They don't know a bunch of things. Usually, in, in rare cases, it, it happens. But in many, in most cases, it doesn't happen that way. It happens just like in the business world. There's a resume sent. There's a one- or two-hour interview by one or more people. And then the pastor is hired after whatever, a couple of weeks or a couple of months or something. Then he's hired. And that's not a good way either. Um, so if they would hold the high standard for... The leaders, I think then the leaders would be able to do so for the rest of the people. Yes. But the people also need to be trained to do that in, yeah. when they select leaders. Yes. It's, it goes both ways, I understand. Yes. So let's do that. <coughs> not, not merely on a profession of faith. And if people do it on the profession of faith, then why won't they say on a profession of faith, somebody walks in and says, God called me to be the pastor of this church. <coughs> That's a profession of faith. Then the people will object and say, "Well, that's not in the Bible? OK? Well, it's not in the Bible for you to, on a profession of faith, become a member automatically either. Yeah. So if that's not in the Bible, this other thing's not in the Bible right. yeah. If you think about it, it's just completely nonsensical, ridiculous, that the way things are handled, because there isn't a, a careful and cautious desire to obey Scripture. That's what's lacking.
4: Yeah, because a professional faith could be polished and practiced and they know exactly what to say when they share their testimony to make it appear that they're the real deal, uh, when in, in fact, in life, they may not be at all.
3: Yes. And, and that's where church discipline comes in after the fact. Yes.